Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're in the midst of a series on emotional health and relational health. And the reason we're emphasizing this is because if we are if we're going to be able to sustain a move of God, we've got to stay in relationship. One of the primary things that sabotages a move of God is the breakdown of relationships. And one of the things, the primary reasons relationships break down is because the individuals in the relationship are unhealthy. And so we've got to deal with our stuff so that we can sustain it. We can develop emotionally and spiritually and relationally. So let, let, me, let me jump in it this way. Theological principles have both a psychological application and a sociological application. Say it another way. The truths that God speaks to you have both an application for you as an individual to receive and to incorporate into your life, also for you to put into individual lives, to disciple people, but there's also a or a sociological element. In other words, there is an application to the corporate group. Uh, anybody that is worth their salt in ministry uh, has to be somebody that begins to a lifelong journey in understanding theology. We are studying God. That's a pretty big deal. <laughs> I mean, just think about that. You're going to study an infinite creature called God. It will never end. We're going to be doing this for eternity. So if you think you got it figured out, you need to humble yourself and settle it right now. You never will. Okay? So we, we have to be theologians. We're studying God. But we also, if we're really going to be able to incorporate this into our life, we've got to become good psychologists. We've got to be able to understand the workings of the human soul because your theology has to be applied to your psychology. You need to know how, how do I take these scriptural truths and how do they relate to me? I've got to understand how my soul works so that I can cooperate with God. And if I don't understand how my soul works, then I'm going to be limited in my application of the word of God. Does that make sense? So that is true. I've got to learn to pastor myself. But I'm also called, every one of us are. This isn't unique to me because I'm a pastor. We're all called to disciple other people. And so uh, what we need to understand is as we understand our own nature, and the Bible is the ultimate psychology book, God is the ultimate psychologist. God is the one who designed the suke, the root word of, that, of psychology, the study of the soul, the soul of man. God designed it. Because there, there's some good th psychological theories out there, but then there's some really whacked things out there. There's a lot of secular people out there that have, uh, matter of fact, I was just at the school a couple weeks ago. We were talking about this, and I might have mentioned this on a Sunday. One of the weird things about us as Christians, there's a lot of them, but one of them, just one among the myriad of weird things about us, is that we start with the answer. And because we start with the answer, we often do not examine the problem very deeply. For instance, alcoholism. Well, Jesus is the answer. That's true. But there's a unique application of Jesus to the unique problem of alcoholism. 
which is different than the unique problem of uh, sexual confusion, homosexuality, which is different from the unique struggle of a uh, you know, relational dysfunction. There's all these problems, and Jesus is the answer. But if we don't understand the problem more in depth, then we are never going to be able to really apply the answer in the unique way that is necessary. And because we start with the answer often, we give shallow answers to problems. We just give the surface. Jesus is the answer. Well, that's true. Jesus is the answer. But what is the unique way in which Jesus applies to the alcoholic or to the person that is struggling with same-sex attraction or the person who is struggling with codependency? How do we, how do we apply that? Well, that demands that we have a biblical psychology. It, it demands that we understand the human soul from a biblical perspective. And that is a lifelong pursuit. The, the, the lifelong pursuit of understanding God is because he's infinite. The lifelong pursuit of understanding us is because we're a mess. And we're just going to be going layer by layer trying to understand this thing. So we need a, a biblical psychology so that we can apply it first to ourselves. And as we understand how we work, we need to realize that we're not unique. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Your struggle is common to man. Now, it may be have some unique little spins on it, but the fact is there's other people that share those unique spins. I may not be one of them. I have my own unique little whist, you know, spin on some weird things that I got stuck in. But we're all emerging out of this thing. So we, we, as we understand us and our a biblical psychology and how we take the theology and apply it to our psychology, the next step is now we're discovering, oh, this is how I can help others. I'm going to apply these biblical theological principles to other people's psychology. So when I realize how to unlock my own soul, I have learned how to unlock someone else's soul. So th- th- I'm getting off on a little tangent here, but... And so in a very real sense, all of ministry, all of teaching, all of preaching is in one sense autobiographical. Because if it hasn't come through you, then it has, you don't really have authority to really delve into that to the extent that you need it. That's not to say, well, because I've never struggled with alcoholism, I'm not going to tell anybody that they need to quit drinking. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that what God will do in his infinite wisdom is take you through some things so that you learn some things so you come out the other end and then you can give away the answers that you got from him to give to others that are still in the thing you went through. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So theology, psychology, there's an individual application, but then there's an application we give away to the individual. But then there's this other realm of sociology where we are learning how to move people groups. There are group dynamics, and that is called leadership. See, a discipler knows how to bring a, an individual along, but a leader needs to learn how to unlock the heart, the corporate heart of people, and get people moving along. And There is a biblical sociology. There are biblical principles that we apply to moving groups of people in the kingdom. I'm not talking some manipulative sense. How do we manipulate a crowd? I'm talking about legitimately how, by the wisdom of God, how do we reach into a group of people and unlock their hearts and unleash that corporate group of people with some kingdom whoop them on the kingdom of darkness? How do we mobilize people? All of this comes out of the word. 
But it demands that we don't just have this thing where we just tinker with ideas about God. We have to also tinker with ideas about us and man and groups of people. And all of this is in, involved in our maturity and us growing up because we're all called to be leaders. We're all called to be disciples. And we're all called to be theologians, to love the Lord thy God with all our mind. And so all of this is important. Now, why I started going down that path, I do not remember. Um, let me look. I, okay, I kind of remember. We've talked about this before, and, and you'll hear this again and again. We're going to come back to this base because what we are doing as believers, discipleship begins with the unraveling of the fall and the human nature. There is the event of salvation and there is the process of salvation. The event of salvation is called the born-again experience. I got saved. But the process of salvation is called discipleship or sanctification and I'm being saved. I'm still being saved. My spirit man was saved in a moment. I, was, I, I can never be more holy than I was that moment I accepted Jesus. Immediately after that, the lady who led me to the Lord gave me money for a Bible and I bought a keg with it. But I was holy in my spirit. The problem is my spirit, my infant, my little embryonic spirit, praise the Lord, was housed by this, this big old, you know, big old fleshly dude. And it was dragging my spirit. No, no, no. All the way to the, the you know, the... Uh, what about the keg? What do you call it? And, uh, no, no, no. And so discipleship is, I'm, I'm going to raise that little thing. No, no. You know, give the word and feed the word to it and it starts to grow up. And then I've got to tame my soul because my soul is the one that translates what I receive in my spirit through my soul, my mind, my will, and my emotion so my body can manifest the kingdom. My spirit was immediately saved. I was born again. I'm a partaker of the divine nature in my human spirit. But my soul was, and I know this is really disconcerting to hear from your pastor, is still a mess. I'm still in the process. Some of you are saying, Pastor, we knew that. But <laughs> there are things we're learning. There, there, I, there's things I don't understand in my mind. There's lies I believe. You say, you really think you believe some lies? I guarantee it. I've discovered some this last couple weeks on the fast. There's other lies I believe. Well, pastor, why don't you quit believing them? Because I don't know it. I'm deceived. Deception is deceptive. You don't know it. And when you know it, you're no longer deceived. So we're, we're continually learning, renewing our mind. Our emotions, there, there are emotional wounds that we carry that the enemy will press on to keep us from going into our destiny. And then there's the, the, the will, the human will must be broken in subjection to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you felt it this morning, but when Faith began to pray that, you know, uh, I, when she began to kneel, was it I surrender all? Or I, I don't remember what song. Man, I felt that. It's like, yes, Jesus, we surrender. I'm taking my will and I'm going to bend it around your will. And then my body will follow. And every now and then I need to fast and just tell my body, you know what? You're going to obey me. No tacos for three weeks. <laughs> I still, it still growls. But now my spirit man's a little bigger. Oh, yeah. No tacos. 
So, so we need to grow up into him. All of this is part of that. Now, last week we were talking about how our woundedness, the, the emotional wounds that we have picked up along the way. And, and, and let me just pause there. In your emotions, it's not just woundedness. Some of it is immature emotions. Sometimes we have immature responses because there are things we missed in our, our home of origin. Here's a good question for you. We need to evaluate the different facets of our life and ask ourselves a very important question. Is this area of my life expressing the kingdom of heaven more or my home of origin more? Because those are not synonymous. Which one are you expressing? And it's a lifelong process of us climbing out of that. So we need to bring our emotions into subjection. Our emotions have carried way too much weight in our life. I think it was, it was T. Austin Sparks said, the soul is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. The mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. The emotions are a great servant. They bring, they bring spice to life. It's like the little, you know, it's like the little salt in your eggs. They add a little flavor. But you don't sit around and eat a bucket of salt and live very long. And a lot of us, we, we live in our emotions. And so we've got we've to bring our emotions into subjection. We're to receive from God in our spirit. Paul said in second, or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, we are, how's he put it? We receive spiritual truth with spiritual words. We, we're, we're, and he says, but the natural man, literally in the Greek, it's psychikos, the soul of man. Some translations, unfortunately, translate that as the man without the spirit. The NIV is one of them. The, a man without the spirit cannot receive the things of God. That is a bad translation. There is a huge assumption that the translators of the NIV jumped and said, if you are led by your soul, you're the man without the spirit. That's not what Paul said. What he's saying is the man who is led by his soul cannot receive the things of the Spirit. It doesn't mean he's not born again. It doesn't mean he's not uh, a, a man that has the Spirit of God. It means that he is not led by the Spirit. Rather, he's led by his own mind, will, and emotions. Matter of fact, just real quick here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, you are, you are mere infants. You are fleshly. You are mere infants. Infantile Christianity is what some people call carnal Christianity. It's people that are led by their flesh. And that is not a version of Christianity. It's a stage. And if you're still living that stage after five years, you probably need to get saved. You probably just were never really born again. I know that sounds a little harsh, but you need to get saved. If you're still living for your flesh, then go back and do the first works. Because very quickly, those things begin to fall away. And the real spiritual maturity, Paul said, the spiritual man, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, the spiritual man judges all things. The spiritual man is the mature adult Christian. It's that the, 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 the component of your Trinitarian nature, of your spirit, soul, and body, the component that is leading you is your spirit. You're led by the Spirit, by in your spirit. If you are walking and keeping in step with the Spirit, then you are a spiritual man. 
Because the Spirit of God lives in your human spirit and you're led by the Spirit and you don't demand that your mind sign off in understanding before you'll obey. Let me say it again. You don't demand that God explain all the details to you and assure you that things are going to turn out the way you want it before you'll obey. Because you're no longer in that middle stage called adolescence where you think you know everything and you're ruled by your emotions and you're very willful. That's the real battle. The infant Christianity where we overcome the flesh, we're no longer going out carousing and all those things. Those things fall away. Then the real battle begins. How do we get from being an infant that no longer follows the flesh to being a mature spiritual man that is following the spirit and no longer relying on our own understanding? This is the dilemma. This is the, the process that we've got to engage in. And you can do it by accident, by just sitting in church and hearing sermons and, oh, man, I never thought of that. Or if you really want to be quick about your growth, you can be intentional and pursue these things and say, I want to deal with my stuff. I want to examine, are there lies that I believe? I'm going to challenge myself. And what that demands is that you are getting with other people and you're sharing your thoughts in the open so that it can be exposed to the light. Said it again and again. What sounds true in a monologue is exposed for the lie that it is in a dialogue. What sounds true between your own ears is exposed for the ridiculous lie that it is when you talk to someone else. You get it halfway out and you're already blushing. I can't believe I thought that. That's why we need relationships. And so we've got to deal with those. What are the lies we believe? Is there emotional woundedness? Is there emotional maturity? Is there emotional stuntedness in our life? Are there certain things that are provoking this leftover voltage, residue voltage from my past? From either things that happened to me where I, they happened to me, or there was deficits, that there were voids that I didn't receive for, that as a child that is missing, so I never grew up into him who is the head. There's things that are missing. And so we, we get what we can in our family of origin. God give us mother and fathers, and we grow in that, and that's good, but our moms and dad all have their own stuff. You know, there's no perfect parents. Right, Evan? And uh, so then we, we deal with that. And then we go out into the real world and we start picking up other things. And we exa- we're, we're throwing the, the, the way of doing relationship we learned in our home into our new relationships. We begin to bump into some things. Whoa, I guess this doesn't work. And we begin to question mom and dad. And that's a healthy thing. It's, there comes a point at which kids have to begin to process their own theology and their own psychology and their own sociology. They need to do it with respect, but they need to come into their own. And so we need to examine these things. And and, uh, this is what spiritual maturity is all about. This is what growing up in the Lord is all about. Now, this thing of emotional immaturity, we talked last week that Every new opportunity in the kingdom will provoke old insecurities from your past. Because it's those new vistas of opportunity. Those things that you have not yet experienced. That God is taking you from glory to glory. He brings you into a situation and it's bigger than you are. It's, Paul uses the picture of a metron, which the NIV, I believe, translates it a field. 
It means a patch of ground that you are responsible for, an area. Uh, it, there are spiritual metrons. There's, there's areas that you're responsible. There's emotional metrons. There's relational metrons, all of these. And so God is incrementally giving us our promised land. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, there's this interesting little verse that says, God tells the Israelites, I will give you your promised land little by little so that the wild animals do not overrun it. What he's saying is, the enemy is going to steward your land for you until you are strong enough to push him off and steward it for yourself. Because if God just snapped his fingers and all the enemies dropped over dead, then the animals would take over. So the picture is this. God was giving them incremental dominion over their promised land. You, my friend, have a promised land. There is a destiny that is within you by DNA. God hath prepared works in advance that you may walk in them. But you need to be prepared in advance so when you arrive, you are the person that can steward it. And if we're not willing to deal with our stuff, what we do, we get the threshold of our future will provoke our unresolved issues. And God designed it that way. Because that's the way he conquers new ground in our life. But if you're not willing to face your stuff, then you forfeit what's over the threshold. Your destiny, God's purpose for your life, lies outside of your comfort zone. You've got to step over the threshold of your comfort zone into the discomfort zone to step into your destiny. And now you've got to grow big enough to inhabit the new territory. And once you're comfortable with the responsibilities and the opportunities and everything that you have before you, once you're comfortable in that, you know what? God's going to open a new door and stretch you again because he never intended you to plateau. There is so much more in us. And the tragedy is this, is so many of us succumb to our unresolved issues and make excuses why we don't have to face those things. We blame and shame and all these things and justify why, well, we're just going to occupy this little patch of ground. And we do it often under the guise of humility when, actual, when in actuality it is fear. I remember when I first got saved, I was walking with the Lord, and I'd get with the Lord, and the Lord spoke to me so clearly out of Hebrews chapter 10, and I would read over that and read over that and read over that and read over that. He said, do not, uh, he said, do not draw back. We are, he said, those who draw back in them, my heart will not be uh, pleased with them, but you are not of those who draw back. But you're going to step forward in confidence was the idea. And I would read over that. And it was like God was warning me, my heart will not be pleased in you. And then he was affirming me, you are not of those who, who draw back. Because in my mind, the reason I became an alcoholic was because of tremendous insecurity. And so I had withdrawn in my life, withdrawn, withdrawn in my life into a little patch of ground. I lived on a postage stamp. And any time a fear would come up, I would get drunk. So I didn't have to feel it. And it kept me from stepping out. And God began to challenge me and challenge me and challenge me. And we need to always be on the stretch. Get ready to live uncomfortable. 
If you want to be great and you need to, you have greatness within you. That is not an ego trip. You are made in the image of the Most High God. There is greatness within you. And what's being expressed, I don't care how great it is, there's more. There is more, more territory within your own soul to be manifest in the earth. But in order to take it, you've got to be willing to live uncomfortable. And so we've got to deal with our stuff. Now, what keeps us, oh my goodness, that was the introduction. I've got three minutes to land this. Here's the thing. What keeps us from moving into our promised land is our unresolved issues. And here's the catch. Many of us treat God like he is a painkiller. Before I killed my pain with alcohol, now I'm going to kill my pain with God. God is not your painkiller. God is not anesthesia. God will, what God is, God is not delivering you from the pain. He's not delivering, he's not causing you to be medicated from your unresolved issues. He's teaching you to resolve them. And what that means is you've got to work through some things and walk through some things. And the pain, you need to get a vision for your life that the pain at the, that the end, at the day, at the end of the age, when we stand before God, the pain of not dealing with it will be much greater than the pain of dealing with it temporarily and pushing through it. Because every one of us are going to look at what was possible. And so we've got to push through this. Now, this is what I wanted to talk about this morning, but I will not have time to do. One of the primary Things that keep us from dealing with our pain is shame. Let me see if I can just read through a couple things. Instead of preaching, and I'll just read it to you. In order to stop sinning, you must face pain. But most of us medicate it instead. Our medication comes, becomes our addiction. What was once relief becomes our go-to. What was once our high becomes our norm, and the low becomes more devastating. It's just like when somebody has an injury and they get, they get hooked on painkillers. What was momentary relief becomes their norm. They keep going to it. And that scenario, that picture, we look at people and, oh, that poor person's a drug addict. Every one of us have been there in our own way. Just we found more socially acceptable versions of that same scenario. And if we're going to be free and grow out of it, because addiction will stunt our emotions, it will keep us small. When I got saved and I got sober, all of a sudden I was having to deal, as a young 20-something, I was having to deal with things I should have dealt with at 14. Because, and ra rather than my emotions having to begin to lift the stresses like most people and growing into a, a healthy adulthood, what I did is I just stuck a bottle underneath it and the, the alcohol bore all the weight and I just stayed atrophied this little tiny. And all of a sudden, here I'm in my mid-20s and I'm like a 14-year-old. You know? But I had to walk through that and not medicate myself in order to grow up. And that's, that's true for all of us, okay? So what keeps us from facing our pain, apart from not liking to hurt, by the way, is shame. God is not a painkiller. He doesn't teach us to cope, medicating ourselves with theology or Christian busyness. He helps us resolve our pain, and this is a process. Sometimes that process is quick, but most often it takes a while. Everybody has their 
processes, and events. Most people have their events. It's available to you, by the way, through encounters and epiphanies, revelation. But there's always processes to it. What I mean is it takes a while. Okay? Conscience literally, okay. But the first step to deal with our shame, the first step is to deal with our shame. Now, here's what I want to drive home. Shame is residual humiliation. Let that settle in for a second. It's the residual humiliation from your past. It is different than guilt. Guilt is feeling badly about what you have done. There is legitimate guilt and illegitimate guilt. Legitimate guilt is I did something wrong, I should feel bad. God forbid I don't feel bad when I do wrong. That means I've got a seared conscience. But there's also legit, illegitimate guilt based on wrong teaching, wrong belief systems, that I feel guilty about something I shouldn't feel guilty about. There are a lot of people in unhealthy relationships that are feeling guilty about asserting themselves when they shouldn't. It's called maturity. But there, there's this tension in their soul. Okay? Sometimes we feel bad about something we did and we should have, we should have done and the enemy plays off our wonky belief systems. I really do have wonky in my notes, by the way. I don't know if I spelled it right, but uh, conscience literally means with knowledge, conscience, with knowledge. If your understanding is off, you can end up feeling guilty about things you don't need to and feel good about things you actually feel guilty over. Paul stated that although his conscience was clear, it didn't mean he was innocent, 1 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Unlike guilt, which is feeling about, bad about what you have done, shame is feeling bad about who you are. It is an identity issue, and it strikes at the foundation of who you are. Okay? And that is the difference. Forgiveness doesn't, completely uh, forgiveness doesn't completely resolve it because it, is it isn't necessarily connected to something you did. Shame can be rooted in three things. Events, painful experiences you have shaped how you view yourself. Number two, environments, family systems and pervasive underlying cultural presuppositions you were raised with, which define you as a member of that culture. You can see this. You go into certain cultures and they're always, they're, their head's always down and they just have this, we're less than. Or you go into some cultures and they're, we're more than. Neither one are good. Paul addresses both of them. We don't have time to get into the, but for the example, there are shame-based family systems. There are cultures that have been dominated to the degree that they are corporately, that corporately the participants lived under a shared negative identity. And then the third one is faulty teaching. There is actually teaching that reinforces self-loathing. I used to be an adherent of that, and I actually preached it, and I repent before God and ask God, help those that sat under my teaching. And I mean that. But I used to think that self-loathing was a spiritual discipline. You fast, you pray, you study the word, and you psychologically beat up on yourself several times a day. Because then you're holy and you're humble. When in actuality, I was agreeing with the accuser of the brethren. I, was, I would say things to myself I would never say to someone else because I knew how it would damage them. But yet I had that internal accuser and I, it was me. I met the enemy and he was me. And it was because of faulty teaching that I had. I sat under a very famous minister for a couple of years. I remember him talking about self-esteem. Self-acceptance. He said, I heard a woman say, I hate myself, I'm ugly. That isn't true. If, they, if you did hate yourself, you'd be glad you're ugly. I, 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 I. 
that's your, that's your counsel and your help? Humility is nothing more and nothing less than agreeing with what God says about you. If what you say is in disagreement with God, what God says about you, that is the height of arrogance that you're putting your understanding over his. Or at least tremendous ignorance that is not privy to what he believes about you and therefore you're at a disadvantage. When the scriptures are used as proof text, now this is just, I need to just state this. When the scriptures are used as proof texts, then rather than correcting us, they simply reinforce our negativity. What I mean by that is when we have faulty theology and you don't have, you don't have men and women of God in your midst and you don't do it for yourself, that really begins to grapple with the scripture and get into a theology. What does the scripture say? Instead, they just have this surface reading and they have their own ideas and then they think, oh, this is what I think. I'm going to find a scripture to back that up. Then these proof texts are simply used to reinforce their negativity about themselves. That's why we have got to learn, we have to learn to wrestle with the scriptures. What does this really say? How does this apply to me? Let the, 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 the scripture preach to us. Get to the, the touchstone of what that, and when you touch the, the authority, the touchstone of what that passage really means, the authority that will reverberate through you and begin to transform you. But if all you do is look for proof texts to quote, I've sat under teachers where it was obvious they had their ideas and they're just they're quoting verses, cherry picking verses that will, but they're, they're they're taken totally out of context. And one of the patriarchs of this house has a saying, Bill Culver, uh, non-contextual principle. There are principles we can derive that are in the context, but make sure it's a legitimate principle that isn't contradicting the context. So we got We got to deal with the word. Now, real quick. Shame will keep you from moving into your future because it keeps you from acknowledging your pain and dealing with your pain because it's so painful. It's so humiliating. It's so embarrassing. It's what happened to Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. They were, they were in the garden and they, the Lord came walking through and they heard him and they hid. And it says they, they closed themselves with fig leaves or hiding in the bushes. And the Lord said, Adam, Adam, where are you? Whenever God asks you a question, it's not for his information, it's for your revelation. God knew where they were. And Adam said, we were hiding because we were naked. Here's the interesting thing. They weren't physically naked anymore. I mean, I'm not saying they had some really fancy leafy clothes. I'm, you know, I'm sure they were, that was the first time anybody had tried to have been a tailor. But they weren't naked. They were covered. But there was something laid bare in the human soul that mere clothing could not cover. There was a nakedness, a spiritual, psychological nakedness that is summed up in the word shame. Matter of fact, previous to that, the, the chapter 2, it ends with this word. It says, and Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. The very next verse of chapter 3, verse 1, and the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals. The writer of, the, of, of Genesis, there's, it's a play on words in the Hebrew. It's Arom and Aram. One letter, Arom and Aram. He's saying Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, but the enemy was crafty. And what he was doing is causing them to be ashamed of themselves. They were trying to cover. They were trying to hide. And man is dealing, has been dealing with that ever since. And it causes us to hide from God and from each other. And the only way we're going to be whole is if we begin to get out of the bushes and drop the leaves 
and allow ourselves to be exposed to both God and people. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.